Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awooga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello, and welcome to the very fucking sophisticated inaugural edition of the Dwarf Cast Book Club, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. In this series, we're going to be rereading, discussing, and dissecting the four Red Dwarf novels part by part, roughly once every fortnight. And we're starting, as you might expect, with Red Dwarf Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers Part 1, Your Own Death and How to Cope with It. Gathered around the GNT Tower's dining table with a box of cheap red wine and an already decimated tray of canapes are Jonathan Capps, Hello. Danny Stevenson, Hello. And me, Ian Symes. And we're joined in spirit by several of our loyal listeners slash readers who have been leaving their comments on the book over at www.ganymede.tv. We'd recommend re-familiarising yourself with the book before listening to improve your chances of knowing what we're bollocking on about. And if you haven't read Infinity, then A, go and do so immediately, you fucking idiot. And B, this podcast will of course contain nothing but spoilers for the first part, but we will do our best not to skip ahead too much. So, without further ado, let's get stuck into the book, starting, as you might expect, with the opening subchapter. So, in chapter one, Saunders, a recently deceased engineer, is struggling to come to terms with life as a hologram. And it's a, it's a whole... That's how holograms are introduced to yeah. the series, immediately. Like, the first thing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Like, it makes you want to... Like, reading it back, it makes me kind of wish that when I first read the books, it was my first experience of it because you know, talking about like first lines that that grab you into the world, like pull you into the world, like Saunders had been dead for almost two weeks now and so far he hadn't enjoyed a minute of it hmm. is perfect because you immediately have about 10 different questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's yeah, the, the way that they uh, do it via the medium of the dead being subjected to bureaucracy yeah and that's the hook that's it's very human yeah. whether that's the main concern it's like oh, i fucking got to fill in all these forms now yeah it normalizes the, something um extreme i guess yeah, yeah. was it in the tv show because of time it's just all very matter of fact it's like anyway, we're on a ship we if someone dies they get brought back as a hologram that's it but here it's it sells how weird that concept is. It doesn't. It doesn't shy away from thinking. You know, this is a person that's just died, yeah. and yet their consciousness is here. It, it gets deep very quickly. Mm. It does, and it immediately uses the the medium to its full advantage. Because one of the, something that a, a book version of the TV show can do is a expand out into kind of side characters more easily, like broaden the scope and b get inside someone's head and like getting inside someone's head that is the big thing that a book can do over a tv yeah. series and it immediately does that and it and the the point of view um the point of view method i guess is w what they do for the for the whole book like jumping from character to character which obviously isn't you know is a common way of doing it it's not the only way you can write a book but it really like really getting into the nitty-gritty of how someone feels and everyone in this book is f just fed up of something or other yeah <laughs> <laughs> like everyone's unhappy yeah in some way. you can really hear rob and doug like <laughs> like these these weary 
I don't know, late twenty somethings <laughs> at this point. <laughs> just like just a bit pissed off with um <laughs> the world. But like um Yeah, it's 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 great because like, you know, not only is it a great hook for someone who's reading this book like completely fresh to the uh, to the universe but someone who's watched the first two series or even like reading it fresh now and have watched all 13 yeah. series um it, it's immediately something new it's like oh well i don't know who saunders is saunders is a completely new character and yeah. um you just immediately get something fresh a fresh perspective and greater depth and it's like a mission statement for the entire book basically yeah, so and Saunders like spoilers. Saunders disappears pretty soon afterwards <laughs> as well. Like we we open, he's the first character we meet, and then he's gone within the next few chapters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's um, it again. That's like a symptom of like this book's really pacey. Like that nothing sticks around very long, and um, obviously we'll get kind of more into that. But yeah, you're right. It's a Saunders as a character with his arc and like everything is almost like a microcosm of like the whole thing that, that, that you know the whole thing they're trying to do with this book yeah uh, we've got a couple of comments on the opening section Pendo says that the opening description of Saunders adds extra layers of complexity and tragedy to hologrammatic life which will no doubt feed into our understanding of Rimmer when he becomes a hologram and yeah like you yeah. said this is the mission statement for the book it's like they introduce us to these very broad characters that are there for a specific purpose to explain and introduce these things, and then it's not until later that we meet the characters that we're actually supposed to care about. So conversely, like obviously the following the following section mentions George McIntyre and his reaction to being a hologram, which is literally the polar opposite of Saunders, which is that you know, he is delighted. <laughs> Yeah, that he doesn't have to worry about things anymore, and Saunders is like, well, I've got, like they've got completely opposite viewpoints of the way the world works. So Saunders is killed by an accident. He ends That's up not true. wanting to live on as a hologram, whereas McIntyre commits suicide and wants to live on as a hologram. Yeah, yeah, I find that fascinating. But the, the person that didn't choose to die chooses to die. Yeah, and the man, and the man who, yeah, it's, it's skipping ahead slightly because the second chapter is we meet McIntyre. Uh, as he meets three giant men who present him with documents which he refuses to sign, so they break his nose. It's worse than and... that. I, think I thought they cut his nose off with a pair of bolt clippers. No, it's it's a turn of phrase. He's holding his nose in his hand, and it's something that confused me for years. But holding your nose in your hand is like, oh, like holding your holding nose in your, hand, in your tissue too. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know. He... But the, but he did. But he does say later in the book that they force fed him his nose. Yeah, like they pushed his nose into his face with their oh, fists. Oh, right, okay. I, I didn't realise what they meant. I always thought the bolt <laughs> no, was I, Exactly the same with me. I'm pretty sure it's figurative. I'm, I'm coming to think Danny might... <laughs> I think I prefer Danny's idea. Because the bolt the bolt cutters were mentioned a lot. Oh, yeah. I've always remembered those vivid descriptions of the, the heavy... Like, about the detail of they couldn't fit their fingers into the coffee cups yeah. because their fingers were so fat. They're cartoon characters. yeah. Yeah, like big apes in suits. Yeah, it's really odd. George McIntyre left the Salvador Dali coffee lounge carrying his nose in a Mimus Hilton coffee lounge napkin, and I was assuming that that was just it wasn't attached to his face at that point. You know what? You know what? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that was my first assumption when I was younger, and then later on I thought, oh, that must be figurative. Like, it must be just, it must be just having a bleeding yeah. nose. Yeah. But then, of course, yeah. I mean, Rob, Robin took a sadistic. Fuck. Yeah, <laughs> this um, is Grant Naylor world. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfectly reasonable. It's quite violent. <laughs> that they would remove well. his nose and try and force feed it to him in a coffee lounge. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, they are cartoon characters, basically. So why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they have um, done that extreme act? That's a good point. <laughs> I'm having my and yeah. assumptions challenged already. <laughs> and again, in terms of mission statement, that's that's Robin Doug's brutality. Yeah, coming to the fore already. <laughs> What's interesting here as well is that, um, like that balance between, like, because when they when they were writing this book, they must have been constantly on their minds must have been we are writing for like fans of ours because at this point the end of series two there was a significant you know groundswell i guess of red dwarf yeah. fans and also you're writing a book for completely new and completely new audience as well so like mm. chapter one a new character for everyone but then chapter two is ah but here's mcintyre so you're seeing you know it tells you that you're viewing a an alternate either a retelling or an alternate um, timeline. Like, you recognise McIntyre, yeah. you know McIntyre from the end, and we're expanding on that. And it, again, it's like, it's almost the first, the second chapter is talking to Red Dwarf fans directly and saying, look, everything's going to get fleshed out a bit more. Isn't that yeah. cool? And I remember that being very exciting the first time I read it. It was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, backstory to, to a character that turns up for 30 seconds yeah, or so. Yeah, exactly. The and everyone gets that. Everyone kind of gets that um, that treatment, apart from poor Todd Hunter, who uh, gets relocated. To anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we'll answer that. the next the next chapter is the fleshing out, the ultimate fleshing out, really, uh, because we suddenly we meet Lister, uh, pre, not only pre accident but pre signing up for Red Dwarf. Uh, so Lister, working as a taxi hopper driver on Mimus following a particularly boozy birthday party, picks up a false mustachioed Space Corps officer and drops him at a robot brothel. <laughs> so that's a very quick way of getting across what happens luxuriously over the space of several pages. It's like it's much longer than the first two chapters. This one, yeah, and yeah, the, those descriptions of my the whole world on Mimus created in the space of a few pages. Mm. It's incredible, really. I mean, that's obviously where the the Blade Runner aspect of the influences come from. I know that Dark Star was always that kind of thing of like that's what the look of it was. But for the for the world building and the the written side of it, I've always thought Blade Runner was always a a stronger influence in terms of that that feeling. This book does justify Back to Earth. (laughs) (laughs) A Blade Runner a bigger influence on the books than it was on the TV series for sure. Yeah, Yeah. because we like like the dystopian world of Mimas that they conjure up. grimy and seedy yeah and actually maybe um thinking about it a lot of that probably probably more came from rob because um anyone who remembers colony um all five of us um yeah. has a very very similar uh setting uh like it's kind of the sleazy blade runnery memacy kind of um setting i can't remember if it was on earth or a different moon or something in colony it's been a long time since i read it but yeah. um yeah I've got um, a note here about um, the the legendary Monopoly pub crawl story as mm. part of this chapter, and uh, obviously um, Virgin Travel um, got their bailout, obviously, so because they they're still doing they're doing space travel um, <laughs> a few decades from now. <laughs> the Monopoly pub pub crawl it it really caught on for whatever reason, um, like more so than anything else from the novels. I think yeah. it seems like that got hooked onto by the fans and it's something that we recognise more than most things. Yeah, I was just going to say it might be because that's what's on the back of the book. <laughs> it's like it's it's front and centre to the story there. Uh, and it's only a couple of pages in the book, but... And I think also, I kind of think of it as as being... so Because it's never 
referenced in the TV show, I don't think, how Lister ended up signing up for Red Dwarf. So I kind of treat the this as the universal canon. <laughs> so like it, I, because it's not contradicted, there's no reason to think that in the TV series Lister didn't yeah. go on a Monopoly pub crawl, end up on Mimus, and sign up there. And because things like Nova Five have been canonized with like offhand comments in Series Seven yeah. and stuff, um, or what happened on Nova Five, I should say. Yeah. Then yeah, what yeah, if otherwise, if not otherwise stated, then assume that the books applied yeah. to TV because yeah. <laughs> it just works it's like why would Lister end up you know in the arse end of nowhere needing to get back to earth yeah very true. It's because he got horrendously drunk did we Capsi both attempt the Monopoly board of crawl once were oh, you there yes um, I remember me you and I remember Swaj was there it was BTLI BTLI days, days yeah probably some, the fa- some other the people. fan club I've... the fan club forums and yeah it didn't go well we we started at Old Kent Road, which is quite a way out of central London. Hang on, did I was it? I see, the, the, those early meetups, I conflate some, and I have memories that I thought I was at some, but I wasn't. So maybe I'm making you a You pretended of you were there. <laughs> no, yeah, but the main thing I remember is just there's a lot of squares on a Monopoly board. Yeah, there is. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> Even I was a teenager at the time, and I couldn't. I couldn't last yeah. the distance. And the waterworks. We got. We have got. As soon as we got into town, we just said, "Oh yeah, that'll do. Let's just stay here." <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You get comfy in a in a pub. Yeah. Like, just, just like fob, fuck it off at Whitechapel. Just think, yeah, <laughs> fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> no one gave me two hundred pounds when I started. <laughs> yeah, that's what you'd need. Pendo mentions the hoppers might have been the, like the influence for what became the uh, remastered Blue Magic. Oh, yeah. Um, in yeah. my head, like, like I don't think there's any question that that's what, that's what they were. Like the whole idea of a hopper is always, like it always seemed to me when I first heard the idea of a hopper, being a like a, a method of transport. It was just like it made no sense in terms of how is that better than, yeah, being stuck in traffic because like the chance like the like, like other than the chance of like midair collisions and people stacking on top <laughs> of each other to park. I was like. <laughs> this doesn't solve any of the problems. I, <laughs> no. I think it's one of those things where obviously the idea was there, but the execution is just shit and just will not work. Like it, it, yeah. it was an idea that just fell over, but it's now too late to do anything about it. Well, this happens all the time. Like when when Rob and Doug start to expand their universe, um, you realise how silly <laughs> their their universes can get. Like. And how I guess how hitchhike hitchhikery. There's so many things where if you think about it too much, you just go, "No, that would never work like that." Like they're, <laughs> they're never, they've never written the uh, super realistic, you know, um, watertight universes. They're, they're they're writing funny universes. There is a thing in the book about like how traffic jams can be so bad they can last up to like several months. Yeah, exactly. But there is actually like evidence of that kind of stuff happening in China. Where the traffic's are that bad, you actually hire someone to, to get into your car and wait for you while you get out of your car and do things. Wow, <laughs> like that is a thing. So it's like it's like it's not a re- it's not a ridiculous thing to think about. That stuff does exist. Like traffic jams can get ridiculous, but obviously you know people dying of starvation. <laughs> Maybe not going to say like um, give or take, you will get to where you're going within the same season. <laughs> or the same season in which you set you off. Set off. Yeah, but it, it's almost like the same problem as the three. Let's say three million years. You know, like it, it's it's a ridiculously big number to the point where it doesn't make any sense. It's almost like um, Russell T Davies' um, problem <laughs> with uh, Doctor Who. Like he would he would times everything by ten to the point where it didn't actually 
um, hold together <laughs> if you thought about it. <laughs> but it is that thing of Robin Doug's shtick in a way when they're building their universes to take what we have today and and fast forward it by however many years. Mm. I think it's it's roughly 150 odd years forward at this point, uh, 160 odd. Yeah. And so yeah, traffic's bad today. Let's imagine what it's like in 150 years, and then let's imagine what the solution might be. Yeah. Yeah, no, no flying cars, like not the obvious solution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like jumping, jumping cars. cars. That's, the, that's the halfway house between those two things. <laughs> yeah, and it do, it does make more sense than Blue Midget being having legs and walking around when it can fly. I just I just like the idea of someone having like the engineers just kind of being allowed carte blanche and no one really checking what they're doing. <laughs> and then just leaving them to it, and then it's like they've put, they've poured too much money into this budget of the engineers doing all this stupid mechanical stuff that were like they just did it for a laugh, but it got out of hand. And then just <laughs> like eventually, when Ho- and like just... when Homer designed a car, <laughs> yeah. like, like the house that gets up and just runs away and then sets itself on fire. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea of the having your legs and stuff, like seeing it run, is like that's just ridiculous. But you know that's just that's the way Red Dwarf works. It sometimes it does get a bit silly for its own good, but um, but I do I do like that. I like the idea. But like and also there's like different classes of Hopper as well. Like some Hoppers are just better than others. Like the one that overtakes yeah. Lister is actually a better model and actually you know it has like some actual level of grace. So maybe they have done it properly. It's just the one that Lister's in is just beaten up and knackered and crap. Yeah. Doesn't work. Yeah. So um, Rimmer gets introduced in this section as well. Although he's not named as Rimmer until later on, uh, but yeah, he he gets introduced as someone who uses robot prostitutes. Yeah, it's an interesting. I think we've got a comment about this actually. Is that um, yeah, I think Dave on the site said that moving on to um, Lister and Rimmer, I remember finally opening to be a real curveball when I first read Infinity, and I don't know if I really like it. It feels out of character, especially for Rimmer. I don't buy him having the confidence to go to a brothel. I see it as being like a, I've never tried this before. No one knows I'm here. No one will know that I've done this, but the fact that you know Lister happens to have just yeah. entered his life, and then he, he ends up, and then something goes wrong, which makes it worse. And it's just like, yeah, I, I always thought it was like Rimmer, like thinking he'd get away with it because no one would know. But interestingly enough, later this chapter, he says that he'd never, he's never cheated in his life, not because he's got any moral character, but because he's terrified of being caught, and wouldn't yeah. like that say, same fear apply to to this because presumably i mean it's not said whether it's illegal no but it's, it's the whole thing no it's, it's it, no Maybe it's it definitely isn't. not it's not illicit but it's the it fact would, that it, i think it's the, it's the thrill yeah. of it isn't You'd it lose it's, face, the, yeah. it's the yeah it's the adrenaline rush of trying <laughs> yeah it's probably not something that's I don't know it's probably not something that you'd want to know if you're an aspiring <laughs> officer <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's, it says a lot about rimmer that later on Skip ahead a little bit to when it all goes wrong and Lister comes and meets him at the brothel and, and sort of gets him out of there. He still feels the need to keep up appearances and pretend that... Like, I don't think this is a small, <laughs> small emoji metery after all. He still had to pretend that it, that his name was Todd Hunter and that he that he wasn't trying to get uh, go to a brothel in front of just a random taxi driver who has no, as far as he knows at that point, has no impact, he's never going to see again. He's not a member of the Space Corps. He's, he's, like, he's not going to tell anyone, but he still feels the need to keep up appearances. Says a lot about his character. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Prior to that happening, uh, we get introduced to Dennis, a bliss freak who thinks he's God, 
and his girlfriend Josie, who's addicted to the computer game Better Than Life. And looking at this back, the Bliss stuff, it's kind of a red herring. Yeah. Is this, there's a chapter here that it works to introduce these two concepts, and obviously one of them goes on to be very important and needs to be set up this far in advance. But Bliss, I'm right in, I think I'm right in saying, doesn't get referred to again. It doesn't think, come back at any point. Again, no. No. It's, a re- it's really strange, because like, I have wider thoughts about Better Than Life in the novels, like the, the game Better Than Life in the novels. That I guess we'll you know we'll get into more detail later, but I I don't yeah. I don't particularly like how um, grim Better Than Life is, <laughs> um, but it's and I always forget I always forget how early on it's kind of set up in this novel as well, just because I think it's just a trick of the mind because the second book is called Better Than Life, whereas it doesn't have yeah. nearly as much Better Than Life stuff in it than this book. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a really it's a really weird one and. Be, getting addicted to bliss just by looking at it is the most hitchhiker's thing that has ever not appeared in a hitchhiker's book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, it's building. It's building so much of a world. I guess this is like it's an accusation that we sometimes level at latter day TV Red Dwarf of like these huge concepts that are introduced and just Tossed on they it. move on within minutes and it's never it never comes back again yeah like you could like bliss could have been a whole di- like it would have been a very different book and not necessarily as good a book you know a, a different book but that could have been the thing that they later get addicted to or whatever yeah very true um i guess you could and the whole thing of thinking thinking that you're god maybe it was like it feels like it was supposed to tie up at some point yeah I don't know how, but it it feels like there was a moment where maybe Lister, something to do with the cats, where if they'd have picked up and did a, a waiting for God type thing instead of a better than life type thing, and there was something that required Lister to act like a god, so he took Bliss in order to do it, but then got addicted. That's really interesting. <laughs> it, would have, it would have been the alternative way of doing things. Yeah, and then obviously, you know, if you cut that stuff out, it still works because it's still these kind of two quite tragic quite tragic like ridiculously tragic figures um, (laughs) that um, it just so happens that only one of them is the uh, Chekhov's gun (laughs) yeah yeah the other one is Chekhov's false (laughs) water pistol (laughs) and I do like (laughs) think it's going to be I do like uh, like again like going back to the more kind of structural part of this book like it's really interesting that an entire chapter a short chapter but entire chapter is spun off from lister walking maybe five meters like in the Mm. time that lister walks five meters there's an entire chapter spun off from it with two new characters that are just there for the one chapter and we're inside their heads for that very short period of time um it kind of gives you it gives you almost like a false protracted gap in between the first Rimmer and Lister chapter and the second Rimmer and Lister chapter, even though it's like, you know, only a few minutes um apart. Yeah. But um God they do they do like being in someone's head so well, don't they? Yeah. Jumping about. Jumping about <laughs> in yeah. between different people. A little detail that I noticed in this chapter is that after Dennis takes the hit and is high and thinks he's God uh, the word me is capitalized in his dialogue. Yeah, I noticed that. So as well. that, that thing yeah. <laughs> that's in the bite in like yeah, in literary in literature when you refer to God, everything should be capitalized. Like he, he, he is. Yeah. 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 And so yeah, only when Dennis is high, 
<laughs> the book agrees. <laughs> it's like the book is literally taking it as if it's the word of God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, actually, Pete Part 3 makes a point about bliss. Um, he seems to think that the bliss is there deliberately to disguise the seeding of better than life, which is yeah. possible. Like, rather than it be a, dro- a dropped thing, it's actually there to... It's a red Slice of hand, yeah. yeah. It's a red Captain Herring. <laughs> so yeah, after Dennis and Joseph, there's a chapter we've already kind of talked about a bit of Lister heads into the brothel to find the officer who's having trouble with a malfunctioning prostitute. And while buying Lister's silence, he accidentally reveals his name is Rimmer. And I really like the casual way at the end of that chapter that... <laughs> Lister having clocked his wallet says Rimmer on it. He just says, See you, Rimmer. And Rimmer says, Yeah, bye. Walks up. It's like, Yeah, yeah you got me. <laughs> and uh, the the Christopher Todd Hunter, or oh, my name's not Christopher Todd Hunter, it, it, both, it feels like like that's almost a punchline just for the show watchers. Just like, mm. oh, look, yeah, like you, rec- that, yeah. you recognize Todd Hunter as a name. But it's weird that Todd Hunter is used in this context and his role later on is completely give, is given to a different character with a different a name. completely new character yeah. yeah i wonder i wonder what the thinking is there maybe just to mix things up and also that here he's uh he's christopher todd hunter yeah oh, not yeah. frank rather than frank <laughs> maybe notice the pro- <laughs> proliferation of franks <laughs> however <laughs> in the next chapter um it is revealed that Saunders' first name is Frank. Uh, so okay. they giveth, they, can't they taketh one Frank, and they giveth another Frank. <laughs> can I be Frank? Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so can so can you, and so is my wife. <laughs> In the Red Dwarf universe, at least fifty percent of men are called Frank. They're all Frank sometimes. <laughs> the rest of that chapter is opened casually with McIntyre committing suicide. Uh, and as Red Dwarf can only sustain one hologram, the death of his superior means that Saunders will be turned off and he's quite happy about it. The, the section with McIntyre committing suicide has a very, that, again, a very sort of hitchhiker's kind of thing with the plant. Yeah, um, massively. The pla- Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of, we've been talking about getting inside characters' heads. They get inside the head of the rubber plant. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> how he's now really annoyed that his best leaf has now got a bullet hole. This, his favourite leaf. <laughs> this quote, This quote right here is amazing. If the rubber plant could have spoken, it wouldn't have said anything. That's how surprised the rubber plant was. <laughs> it said, and even if someone asked me, it wouldn't have spoken, even if it could have. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's so pissed off. <laughs> that was very, that's very Douglas Adams, that that kind of whole thing of just like, well, it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah, it's the whale, isn't it? Suddenly becoming yeah. Yeah, into existence. It's 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 slightly confusing, and it is it's a weird tonal difference to what we would have been used to a Red Dwarf reading this for the first time. But I think it's really it really is needed considering it's in a suicide scene. Like mm. it, just yeah. a bit of you know, it's a comedy book. Is this a comedy book, Stu? Yeah, keep it light. <laughs> keep it light. <laughs> it's just blown his head off. But just keep it light. <laughs> and then yeah, that's that's followed up by Saunders being in counselling. <laughs> and this is, I always hear the counselor's voice as the Chris Barry does like a, a sort of German ish. Yeah. And yeah, there's so much in this book that I just hear in Chris Barry's voice from <laughs> listening to the audiobook so often. It's interesting actually because it's the first time I've heard the audiobook unabridged, like since I bought it. The abridged version doesn't have any of that, um, mm. of his dialogue in there. So it's really weird to hear this new voice in my head of someone I haven't thought about what the voice sounded like and to have it as like a sort of German, like I said, a Sigmund Freud-esque psychiatrist is like, 
<laughs> very it's, it fleshes it out a lot more and actually what he says is not a million miles away from the conversation that they have in the promised land what Kat says to Rimmer oh, when yeah. Kat's being really blunt about you don't really exist you think you think uh, but you don't think yes that's that's the gist of what the psychiatrist is saying to uh, Saunders here yeah you think, therefore, you probably are. <laughs> you think, I therefore, probably you probably are. are yeah. <laughs> I and probably then... are. Yes, you Saund- probably are. <laughs> <laughs> Saunders repeated this, and the uh, psychiatrist looked pleased as if he <laughs> was starting to grasp it. He actually it. finally got something. <laughs> but, yeah, but the I'm a computer simulation of me is definitely the, the... It's a very strange idea, metaphysically and, you know, like, psychologically, of you not being the person that you... You are literally not the person you were, but you have everything about that person. So it's like then it becomes an ethical rather than a moral problem. So it's like, mm. and and that that's the weird thing about like Saunders has been brought back, and it's like, like he has no choice in the matter. Like it's obviously in his contract that he's brought back. You know, yeah. as a hologram, kind of against his yeah. will. Yeah. yeah, it's very weird. It's an, it's another example of kind of almost inexplicable technology or an inexplicable thing in this universe is that when when they talk about how much. <laughs> how much power generating a hologram costs like and, and the immense effort and you know the amount of power drain and then you, you start to think like why would someone like saunders like do, they don't explain why saunders is is critical it's not like oh we must have a hologram and so whoever is the most recently dead highest ranking member should be brought back it's like you know why bring that seems back? to be it <laughs> it's not necessarily about the person being indispensable it's like okay we were allotted one hologram yeah, so, so we'll just we'll have, have <laughs> yeah we'll just have whoever's highest up we've yeah, been given like the budget for it so we need to spend it otherwise we don't get it next time yeah it's the council <laughs> digging up the road in march it's a yeah yeah it's a line in the budget. <laughs> well, next uh, next chapter, Lister signs up as a technician on board Red Dwarf. <sighs> very, very short summary, but it's a hell of a scene. This it's is good. an all this is an all timer. This one, it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> so it's obviously where we find out that Lister was born under a pool table. Not born under a pool table. He was left under a pool table. <laughs> he um, may have been born under he that. Might, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Into um, a cardboard box directly. <laughs> But but that whole thing of just like listing is just like I always found at a pool table, uh, you know. Yeah. The comic timing and pacing of this chapter is sublime. Like the the, the slow reveal of 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 Lister's qualification. So, yeah. Or lack of. Yeah. Or one, you know, technical drawing, but that doesn't count because I failed. And 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 each each point of this, you know, Caldicott is having to scrub things out and then with a punchline of Caldicott took out the tipex and obliterated the word possible from possible attitude problems just <laughs> oh. that is definitely one of those scenes that I wanted to see in a film like that's, yes. that's one of the scenes that I can totally envisage in my head as being yeah. like Lister's not even looking at Caldicott at any point during the conversation he's just idly kind of just yeah, he's not really looking at him. He's just kind of, of like, off yeah, well, I just, you know, I just want to join up. I'm not really that bothered, you know. I just, I'm he's not... just idly doing other things while he's talking, and like, Caldicott's trying to catch his eye, and he's just not taking, not taking any notice. I'm not usually very good at visualizing um, scenes in books, but for some reason, like this scene and uh, later on when they, you know, his locker um, in the spaceport, and just uh, really all mm-hmm. of mine for whatever reason is. One of the things that's really vivid in my head, I can mm. really, really vividly imagine this kind of recruitment office, and it's, it's like, it's in a seedy part of town, and it's they've just got whatever building they could just to, just to, you know, 
Yeah. Um, just to side people it. up. Yeah, you can really picture it. Um, the big windows with the streets out there. It's almost like it's it's a brothel, but, you know, for JMC. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the even without like having the audio books, you can hear the cadence of that dialogue. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, A, it's written by two people who've written so many sketches and sitcom scenes that obviously their dialogue is going to be spot on, but also the way that it's... You mentioned, Katsu, that it has a pace, and it does, even though it's in a book and it's written down. But the way that it's presented, like the short lines with, you know, that they don't bother with the he said and Caldicott replied and whatever, they just go line after line after line. Mm. And then every now and then chuck in a descriptive bit or Tanky. you know a little they bit put of in a key frame. To... yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. they like this is where you're supposed to pause and think and this is where the dialogue continues and yeah you can see how a director would block this out you can do that really easily just by reading it without really even thinking about it yeah. it just appears in your head because of the way that it's presented on page it's like the book has kind of has grabbed you by the hand and like Start like the chapters are quite short anyway. Start the start of the chapter and it just drags you through, and you can't really oh, control yeah. how quickly you're reading it until you realise that you've you've just torn through the whole the whole thing, and everything you know it's um it's remarkable. Yeah, those short, yeah, each part of the book being divided into lots of short subchapters really helps. And I wonder how much of that is you know Robin Dugg had never written a novel before. Um, they'd come from like they're they're slowly progressing like. They've they've said in interviews that when they wanted to do a uh, when they first wanted to move into TV they got told oh you're just radio people and then when they first uh, tried to do a sitcom they're like oh you're just sketch people so each time they're taking this this next leap so they've graduated from sketch to half hour sitcom kind of like already within the space of two series mastered yeah <laughs> as we previously discussed like by the time they get to series two they've mastered how to write a half hour sitcom <laughs> and so next they go to a novel yeah and so that part of that stepping stone into writing a full-length novel you know 300 odd pages whatever it is is that they do it bit by bit almost like scenes like they they these sub chapters are, are, are the equivalent of scenes in a tv show yeah. so this you know this pilot <laughs> this this uh opening part that sort of sets up the bulk of the story is split into 20 scenes and you can totally see those playing out yeah you really can you know, obviously finding their finding their way in which they can write a book and come into this new medium really like and still be familiar with them it's it, it again like it makes you like when you when you rem- are reminded of how good this book is and how accomplished their writing was with their first novel it makes you wonder like why what why wasn't there why didn't more happen like why why didn't they you know why weren't they massive <laughs> you know in a yeah. way that you know they could kind of like red dwarf almost ended up burying them both like doug was buried under red dwarf and you know, Rob, Rob run away from Rob it. Run away from it, yeah. And and nothing really kind of you know, like Rob wrote some obviously some books not in Red Dwarf, Red Dwarf universe, but not many considering it was over the span of mm. thirty years from this one. Um, it yeah. just seems like such a shame. I know it's not a new thought, but it's, it's, it feels like we've kind of missed the the oeuvre is much smaller than it should be. Yeah, yeah. Or, or at least in this era, because like pre Red Dwarf, they were so prolific just as jobbing writers yeah. initially. But then, yeah, since they hit their stride and, and reached genius level, it burned so quickly. Yes. <laughs> Make a good quote, that. So in the next chapter, uh, Lister is collected from his uh, luggage locker uh, and taken on board the shuttle up to Red Dwarf, where he meets Peterson, 
and is shocked to discover that the ship won't be returning to Earth for another four and a half years. Wow! Uh, but yeah, that's not that's again that's not really the story of this chapter, and that is the introduction of Red Dwarf itself, mm. which is epic in the in book Amazing. form. Um, before we get to that bit, just a, as a as a note, uh, this is where we first hear. Well, here is when it first is written down uh, Lunar City 7, a.k.a. Teganomede and Titan. But the lyrics in, in the book are very, very slightly different to what Lister sings when he sings the full version in Future Echoes. Because uh, he sings, out of 10 you score 11, you good old toddling town, rather than you good old artificial terraform settlement. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is harder to make scan. <laughs> I mean, listening to uh, to Chris Barry attempting to sing that with some level of like, <laughs> yeah. rhythm is insane. Because I'm reading it going, I don't even know how you're going to sing that. I can't and remember. How it, right. it can't be done. It can't be done. That is a joke designed for a book. The end. Yeah, like, you can't. You can't <laughs> yeah. translate that to anything because you read that and you just think, "Ah, oh, that's hilarious." You can't sing that. <laughs> <It's> silly. <Yeah. laughs> then having to depict someone singing it makes it yeah. tricky. And also, my my um, I'm I'm actually. <laughs> Um, I own the books several times over, so I don't feel bad about torrenting um, them for convenience onto my Kindle. And the first line of this has obviously got a scanning error because it says to Canny Mead and Titan. <laughs> Canny Mead. Canny Mead, that lake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that hot honey based drink, Pet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's some Canny Mead. <laughs> So, um, renaming the site very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, the part then when Lister is sat chatting to uh, Peterson and then sees Red Dwarf properly for the first time, the the description of it there is is so beautiful. But like, there's bits that I forget as well. Like the the whole thing of it was big and red is is a famous bit. But there's also like they describe skyscrapers and buildings within yeah. buildings and. Mm. It really Red Dwarf is a city. Yeah, the scale so in the books. is communicated. You can't get that across on TV. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean the model the model shot attempts to try and get a, get across the scale, but it's genuinely without some level of like some serious detail going on. It's yeah. impossible to to get your head around it's, it how valiant. massive this thing is. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a beautiful moment where I Lister. Um, for a second glimpses like the little dot of earth and then red dwarf obliterates it yeah and it's yeah i mean a, that is a kind of metaphor that is a sort of metaphor for the way these people live and yeah the layer the like the uh, almost like an archaeological dig like the layers of like different styles over the decades because it took so long to build mm. and like the yeah. whole concept of these ships were built in orbit in zero gravity, therefore they don't have to conform to to to, to normal um, normal designs of vehicles. Yeah, um, it's such a great idea as well. Yeah. Like it's not really it's not really explored very very much. It's incredibly um, canny. Like that's how spaceships are built. They obviously they're built to get off the Earth, but once they're in, orbit, yeah, and once they're out there, they don't need to have. They don't need to be pretty. They don't need to be. Well, the book says they're built in orbit. They never even touch an atmosphere. Exactly. So, yeah. like, to have that option of not even having to worry about the aesthetics of it yeah. being able to leave a planet, it's like you build it when it's already out there. You can do what the bloody hell you like because it's, it's not very really ev- encounter anything that's... idea. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to care about Earth aerodynamics or, you know, mm. 
aerodynamics with it with oxygen involved. Yeah, it could be built for space travel. You'd have to worry as, about things as, being burnt off it, or you can just make it whatever the hell shape you feel like, or, or and then just add stuff as you. And it seems like as if Red Dwarf is a very modular ship. Yeah, yeah, it'd have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you think mm. about it. Also, it doesn't care if a moon just slams into the side of it; it'll just build around it. Yeah, mm. build around it. Yeah, it clarifies that as well, which is never directly referenced in the TV show why why there's a moon poking out the side of the ship. Oh, an astro- <laughs> yeah, this, it's, this actually, is it's weird that they call it a moon in the book because to me a moon is something that is many thousand times bigger than five miles across. So it would have mm. destroyed Red Dwarf, but maybe maybe <laughs> uh, you know maybe a moon could be that small. Maybe, it maybe it's just orbiting a very tiny sun. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> or a very small, tiny small, tiny, infinitesimally small planet. Tiny planet around a tiny sun. Tiny sun. <laughs> uh, as, as Clem says, uh, I love the description of the exterior of the ship in that chapter uh, when Lister sees it for the first time. Quite a lot about the ship is different in the novels, inside as well, but they didn't make it sleek. It's not the pencil. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's the, the description of the big, big red clenched fist of metal. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, that's the one that's always stuck with me. That that feels like that's what Red Dwarf should be. Yeah. And he's probably one of the reasons why the pencil ship have offended me so much <laughs> there was when, a, it, there was a point, when it appeared in Remastered. There was mm. a point in time in nineteen ninety six where Doug and Ed should have read this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but obviously the fact that it's red is interesting because obviously that was written after they'd seen what the model looks like. So obviously the the because they didn't intend it to be that way, so it's not like That's true, that. yeah. So the fact that it's red is now canon because it was in the show. So it wouldn't have yeah. been had it not been. I don't think we've kind of mentioned explicitly, have we, that this was written after series two had aired? Yeah, it was between series two and three. Um, at this stage in this part, there's there's nothing much beyond. Oh well, better than life has already been mentioned, and that's a series two thing rather than a series one. Yeah, but yeah, there's there's going to be a lot more interesting stuff to say about that in the next podcast i think yeah because that's when we start to get into more from the tv series being brought in mm. in the meantime uh what happens next is that uh lister goes on board and meets the ship's computer holly uh and is then shown to his sleeping quarters and to discover that his roommate is none other than the whoremonger rimmer that he previously <laughs> met <laughs> i'm reading my own description of these chapters and i'd forgotten that i'd written that. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and Dave says, I love the introduction of Red Dwarf and Holly with so much more depth and detail than we could see from the TV series. The scene with everyone asking questions of the personality Holly feels very cinematic, and I like the idea of the ship being covered in a visible metro system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's so much that gets brought in there, and yeah, Holly being introduced and everyone asking him, and he sort of effortlessly yeah. like, fires the answers back. It's it's very realistic as well, like, you know, when someone discovers almost like a new tech toy, it's like, like uh, you know, when you get a Google Home in the house, yeah. it's like, oh, <laughs> just I'll just ask it a question. <laughs> See if there's any Easter eggs built into yeah, Holly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, Holly, let's yeah. do a quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Piss on. Um, this is an interesting moment as well, because I think this is the first time that a character in the book is specifically based on the actor that plays them in the show. The description of Holly. The description of Holly in yeah. East London was a middle-aged, balding man. Like, it's, it's clearly like you, they're describing yeah. Norman. And of course they are, because Norman's the only reason that he was ever an on-screen character anyway. Um, True, yeah. So, you know, he's on-screen in the books as well. So, and I like the fact that, um, the, as was mentioned in that comment, that the Metro system on board Red Dwarf... <laughs> Red Dwarf has a northern line. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just imagine it being exactly like the tube as well. Like there's no yeah. difference in it. It's just it's what people are familiar with. Therefore, that's what they get. Well, maybe they they bought a load of old stock off um off TFL. Yeah. Maybe it is literally yeah packed up the northern line brick by brick and transported it. Just tightened for London. <laughs> nice. In the next chapter, the next day, uh, Rimmer inducts Lister and his other new recruits into Z Shift, the cleaning team that Rimmer runs. And again, Z Shift is another one of those things that sort of seeped into the sort of mainstream of of Red Dwarf fandom. Yep. That that's what that unit was called, but in the TV series, there's never any indication that it, there's a wider team than just Lister and Rimmer. Yeah, no, they're no. just hired up, and that's it. If the version of Red Dwarf in the TV series is so much smaller, um, because you know the, there's at that point there's only 169 people on board, uh, and in this it's 11,169 in the novel. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny you mention that because it's injustice that we hear about Z Shift, and it's also the one where the crews expanded. Oh. <laughs> Yes, so we don't know. <laughs> so they'd evidently just reread. They just uh, <laughs> look back on Infinity. Yeah, it could there's be loads. two, could be twenty. When they wrote Justice, this must have been fresher in their mind. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there's two things that are carried over. Se- series four steals a great deal from the books. Um, yes, and which we'll get to in several will, podcasts yeah. time. But I think this is one of the areas in which, like, like there's some changes from show to book where you think like that's just changed just for like just to mix things up a bit but um, upgrading Rimmer from second technician to first technician is a really good decision because mm. it puts him in this very small position of genuine power like he does have a command <laughs> um, yeah. and that makes it f- uh, that that allows you to explore far more interesting stuff for him than him just being someone who wants to have a command but is basically the same as Lister you know it's just more interesting this way it's like he's got he's got as high as he can in this particular path of career, which is not the path that he wants to be on. So he wants to be officer class, but he's stuck as a technician and he's done as best as he possibly can in becoming the best rank of technician, but he can't get any further. In my head, it's like with Z shift he's like, he might've been in charge of like 20 people, but within about a month, those people will have got to a higher rank than Rimmer just to get away from him. (laughs) And then he's just left with him and Lister, who doesn't give a shit about going any higher than he is. So he just ends up with Lister by default because he's the only one who doesn't give a shit about going anywhere. It isn't going to go anywhere, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) so it just ends up that way anyway. In the middle of this, while Rimmer's giving his speech to his new recruits, in the middle of that, there's this diversion, which is uh, completely uh, self-indulgent but brilliant, where they just it takes <laughs> it takes an entire page just to describe the Rimmer salute and all its variants <laughs> at great length, and it I I think again is something that struck me when I was rereading. I don't think that Rimmer's salutes were ever referenced on TV until series eight yeah. when he is in the captain's office and says, "Oh, this is my extra special, extra long salute." Whereas previously, for like the first seven series, Rimmer's there just doing this weird salute that there's never, no one ever comments on. He never explains. <laughs> there's never have, anything in the TV series that says why he's doing it this. It could have been a JMC salute for we knew. Well, I don't think it is because the, 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 the one clue that I've got that it's something that Rimmer made up is because as soon as everyone sees him in uh, Balance of Power in the flashback, they all take the piss about the, the yeah. salute so they all do it no, as like right. a mocking yeah, thing like point. you know like like you mentioned it in the book about Peterson doing it and falling on the floor and like it was funny yeah. the first time he did it so it's obviously something that Rimmer's made up and everyone else has gone yeah you're being a dick like, like but that's a, that's as explicit as it gets the fact yeah. that Rimmer it's obviously just Rimmer that does that 
here in the book we get not only the rimmer but the half rimmer and the double rimmer as well. <laughs> yeah, the full the full gamut is explained. <laughs> and then it ends with uh, rimmer being beaten unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> Bonk. Bonk. <laughs> Again. By a guy who sounds like um is it Baxter from series eight? <laughs> Baxter, on, yeah, just, on. just I imagine this is big hulking, just a brick shit house, basically. Just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If they if they did if they did adapt this into a special or a movie, it would be Ricky Grover making a cameo. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it couldn't be anyone else. It could be um, Bet Best. Is it Best Strangler McGee? Oh, it could be the Shen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it could be the Shen. Tobacco. It's just that whole thing of just that gruff Cockney dude. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you can just really, you can just fully picture it. Like it's so vivid, so vivid. Mm. And after this, after Rimmer is brutally beaten unconscious, which is also something that happens in Tika to Ride uh, and Duck Soup, <laughs> like a scene ending with a character having the shit beaten out of them. It, it happens. <laughs> Uh, but then after that, it's it's McIntyre's Death Disco, where you get a it's kind it's similar to the version in the TV show. It has some elements of the speech are similar that McIntyre gives, yeah. but that's when it goes into the detail of this was his plan. Um, the, like McIntyre's whole plan was he'd got himself in debt and explains <laughs> how he'd got himself in debt <laughs> with the game Toot, <laughs> which is just <laughs> it's another one of those things where it, like a hitchhikersy type. Yeah. Scenario, a thing that they've invented just for this, like for no other reason than to explain why McIntyre killed himself. They invent the game of Toot, where African giant African snails with sharpened, pointy bits attack each other for six months. The fact that it takes so long that people just get more drunk and just keep increasing their bets, and that's how it makes money. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about when I was reading it was in my head, I was just like, oh my god, that was an amazing attack. Let's watch that back in slow motion. And it takes like four weeks to watch it. <laughs> so many little details in this chapter. It's like there's, it's it's one of those things. It, this is it comes to a quite a natural point at the end of this chapter, which we'll come to, of like, this is the chapter that finishes setting up. Uh, this is like this establishes what status quo on Red Dwarf is for Lister and Rimmer, and then at the end of this, it moves on to do other things. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many little details that are in this section. One, well, I'm just going to go through my notes, but one of the things that I noticed is that in McIntyre's story, the um, the loan company had given him, which was run by the Ganymedian Mafia, had given the details of the APR in the microdot in the eye of <laughs> welcome to the thing at the top, which is a joke which was then later used in Back to Reality, which was ages later yeah. by these standards. Yeah, yeah it's that whole thing about this, again, the bureaucracy taken to the nth degree of like, why yeah. didn't you read the small print? Small being the fucking operative word. Also, I mean, since we're like comparing to hitchhikers constantly, it's like the planning yes. permission for um, yeah. the yeah, bypass. Beware of the leopard. Beware of the leopard, yeah. We also learn here that the captain is a woman and a that woman? she is called Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. A woman. <laughs> yeah, this really does, like, this definitely sticks out as we've changed something just to make it different. Because mm. I find it really difficult to get Hollister out of my head. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene later on which is taken from the end, but with Captain Kirk. But with Captain Kirk, Captain yeah. Mm. And, and not that Captain Kirk. <laughs> that is made easier with, with Chris's dialogue. True. In my head, like the audiobooks do make some of these changes a lot easier to kind of deal with because you, you're presented with a different voice to that character. And to, for me, it does help. When I read it, I was just like, oh, it's, it's, it's a different person, but I never thought of her being American. 
obviously that's been inspired mm. by the idea of it being because Mac did it originally, therefore he's done a slightly sort of female Mac equivalency. You know that that that's the. It's true. I think Hollister's mm. just so perfect <laughs> in the as a character in those early series. Yeah. I think you're right that there's no reason for it not to be Hollister. So it, it must be just a point of difference. Maybe it was that they wanted more diversity, like, deliberately to have a woman as the the head, the, as the captain, mm-hmm. as the leader, mm-hmm. because like Redwood on TV, other than Kachansky uh, being an officer, everyone else in the, in the senior command, Owen Brown, <laughs> yeah, uh, who we meet in Body Swap. But maybe is that, that's, is that maybe also their sort of alien? Uh, influences kind of kicking in about sort of strong female characters as well. Yeah, mm. they're, they're correcting them. I guess it's a self-correction thing, and it is like the character of Kirk is. I mean, much she's mostly got Hollister's lines, but the character yeah. is 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 good, and and there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. I think it's just a, it's literally just a a sticking point of knowing the show first for me, and, yeah. and that, yeah. that's as far as it goes. We also get another minor character in this bit, which is Phil Burrows. <laughs> which is just a bloke that has accidentally ended up in Lister's group despite Amazing. <laughs> he's accidentally ended up with the like the hard drinking, like rowdy, <laughs> blokey layabouts when he's more of a rimmer character. And then they like they make him go and buy four pints each as part of a round, and then Chad yeah. and Selby just nick his pints anyway. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like a computer game where you're you're in an open world and you can like you can point, you can like scan an NPC on the street, and it gives you a brief backstory to that person to give them a bit of like like Rob and Doug have just done that. So we we want to you know we want to see more of this group of people, but. Rather than being in Lister's head, they just pick this NPC basically, and yeah. just just like it's it's funnier doing it that way. But I, I do like the fact that Lister and and Peterson and Chen and Selby and all that are all such good company that they actually do sort of corrupt him in a slight way because he says, <laughs> "Oh, normally he'd be kind of done after three pints, but you know he's already finished yeah. his eight. He has actually had like, eight, yeah, yeah." And then and then he, and then there's a bit in the book that until literally until like the last time I read it, I understood it for some reason. I thought when he said three identical barmen took his order in my head, that was the uniform was the same. And I didn't realise it's just, he's that pissed. There's three of them. It took me that long to work that out. Oh, yeah. I never got that. I assumed they were androids. No, that's a, that, again, yeah, that's the thing. I was always thinking there was some sort of like, oh, three oh, yeah. people. That's a really obvious three identical barmen. They're just, he's that pissed. It's like triple vision. And then he just passes out. It is, um, it's a thing they do a lot. I, and this, is, I think maybe is the reason why I've gone back and forth on the, you know, McIntyre carried his nose out with a Hilton handkerchief. That they they throw out like a, a kind of a dry, a dry quip like that, and it doesn't get explained immediately, and that's quite yeah. unusual. Like you, it's kind of like yeah, deadpan prose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like everything they say, they do it at face value, and it's up to you to determine what's a metaphor and what's not. Yeah, mm. but it, but it sort of says a lot about like the, the Lister and 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 Peterson of the they found their way of how to deal yeah. with they they found their way of dealing with this situation. Why is it getting hammered all the time? Just because it's easier than having to think about it. Especially Lister, because he's obviously planning on like he's only planning on being on the ship for like a year. Yeah. And then realised that that's just a round trip and that's why. Yeah. However, Peterson his scheme that is introduced here where he's he's brought a twenty five bedroom mansion on Triton. But the only the only problem is that Triton has no atmosphere and is made of methane and so he can't actually live there. Actually though, 
that he says that in 10 or 20 years time they are going to have terraformed it and converted it yeah. and give it a breathable atmosphere buying up huge property on on that 20 years in advance of it becoming habitable that is a brilliant money making scheme yeah. peterson has done something that's He's not really wrong. sound it is a good money making scheme if that house exists I took that to mean that he's just been <laughs> scammed by someone. <laughs> oh, okay. He took it. The, there was a drawing of the house drawing. because you can't take yeah. photographs. That's the detail. <laughs> so some guy just. But then, him. even if he, even if he just owns the land, that, that it's true. Yeah. He's, yeah. If he's bought something, if he's got deeds to something on there, it'd be like you know, people like back when London was smaller and more affordable. Yeah. Like people could easily. Not easily, but you know, it was much more affordable for ordinary people to buy a, a small townhouse in Soho yeah. in the sixties, and now all of a sudden they they're millionaires because of their their accidental property investment. In one of the the uh, quarantine conferences, was Paul Jackson telling us about this? About like, was it Bob Hope or something saying he was buying? He went every time yeah. he went to film oh, somewhere, yeah. he would look around the general area for. Um, for properties that he kind of liked, and they just kind of bought them up, and then like by the time that the cities had grown around these yeah. places that were, they buy houses in small suburbs yeah. just on outside the outskirts town. of London, yeah. so that as London expanded, you know, you'd assume that would be places like Watford or you know, or Halston or whatever. Yeah, that as London expanded, they became part of London, and therefore the value tripled. Yeah, and he had this with various American cities. That's what, yeah. If if Peterson's idea did turn out to be proper, then yeah, it was a bloody good investment. But it's like, yeah. like I think Caps is right. I think it does seem to be more of a Or it's the fact it's that it's such a, like, again, it's probably not as good as it sounds. Like you literally go in. Well, and if like, not, why not? <laughs> go go and buy up. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna now. I'm gonna buy property on Mars. <laughs> I'm sure there's a yeah, just, just Google just it. Play the long you, game. Can buy, you can buy an acre on Mars right now. Um, oh yeah, well you can buy stars, can't you? Yeah. yeah. Like who, you can, you can who buy who a actually... piece of the moon, even though no one yeah. owns the moon. <laughs> who has the rights to sell? Me that? Uh, and this chapter has the best closing line of possibly any chapter of any book ever. But we're going to come back to that uh, because at the end of this podcast, we're going to have a little section where we talk about our favourite bits. So I'm saving that okay. for later. But yeah, enough. Because yes, at that point the. It seems like everything is up to this point in the book has happened in quite a short space of time. Like we're we're following Lister's story semi continuously. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how much of a gap there was between him deciding to sign up and then him actually being pulled out of his locker. But you know, effectively, it's it's pretty continuous. And here, there's a bit of a, a time jump, and all of a sudden, it's five months later, and that is so that we can get to establishing that life on board ship is terrible and awful and everyone's terribly bored <laughs> yeah. yeah you gotta you gotta leave it long enough for Lister to be going out of his mind it's sort of so i saw there was a few comments about um how quickly that seemed to happen it's like they spend all this time establishing what led lister to come to red dwarf and his first couple of days and then all of a sudden we jump five months later but kind of all we need to know is that every day of those five months was repetitive the same thing Once as the last the same thing and that's why Lister, five months into a what's what he what is at this stage going to be a four and a half month trip, a four and a half year trip rather. Yeah. He this is why he's so bored and so desperate to come up with an alternative plan. Mm. Uh, so yes, the synopsis for this chapter: five months later, Lister is bored with life on board ship, and Rimmer is struggling with exams. And again, that's quite the understatement. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole thing about how Rimmer, <laughs> why Rimmer's it's, bad at exams. Is this chapter where where the the um, 
the timetable is explained oh is that no that's after no that's, that's, that's after. a bit later on yeah yeah we'll come back to that yeah no he's studying under his pink lamp it's more about yeah. the sort of the history of uh, like why rimmer is so driven to become an officer and it just seems to be just cause like there doesn't seem to be an actual reason other than the fact that everyone else is an officer why yeah. aren't i it's literally that and it, but it's got it's got the bit here of his 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 imagined conversation with his mother because his brothers are, are all really successful. And <laughs> if I could sue sperm, I'd sue the sperm that made you. <laughs> There's a really I mean, interesting style to this chapter as well, because we start in Lister's head, and at a certain point, it morphs from Lister, ref- Lister in Lister's head referring to what Rimmer's doing to suddenly we're in Rimmer's head with what he's doing. And then it kind of goes yeah. back to Lister, I think, or it could be Rimmer saying that Peterson shows up, does the exact same salute. Mm. It's it's very it's odd. Of, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a pull focus. Yeah. Yeah. We start off on Lister and then we, we move we hover over to Rimmer's head and then we hover back to Lister's afterwards. And there's a couple of lines that are ambiguous enough that you're not entirely sure whether they're coming whether they're Lister ob- ob- observing Rimmer or Rimmer observing himself. It's um yeah it's mm. quite interesting. I find his his tales of revision woes because this is this is where he talks about what he'd do. You know, he'd he'd do the timetable and then procrastinate to such an extent that he'd realise he only had a few days left, and then go, "Oh well, this day is a write off. I might as well just go to bed now." Yeah, and like I, that is so relatable <laughs> to uh, to university days for me. Yeah. I didn't even have exams, but this was me and my to, course. To the work. point where, the, where, where the, you know, that whole set. I think it comes after the Kachansky, um affair, but um, that that whole description of the anxiety of a lead up to an exam really like just make my stomach knot. <laughs> yeah. I was when I was reading this, I was genuinely like I was trying to think of a situation where I have done exactly that, and uh, crunch sounds very similar to this. Uh... <laughs> But this yeah, whole thing of point. like you know like um it's just that gripped to gripped by an almost deraging panic and then it's just that awful realization that it's like you have to do this you have to do you know, you've got to get this thing done and you have no time to prepare and you have no choice but to do it and that just sends me into just Tells reading you. it reading rimmer struggling with this whole <laughs> thing is like really stressful this whole chapter for me was like really fucking stressful to read because yeah, it just rings so where, damn where you have for six months of your life you are taking an exam every day well it's just, <laughs> it was just the fact they just like you know there's like you can't get away from it it's not you, you, there's nothing yeah. you can do other than just do it and it's like you haven't got a choice other than just get the fucking thing done and yeah. it's just by by hook or by crook and you just you battle through until it's done and then and then you're just like well was it worth it <laughs> but all uh, in this section, we also get um, the the book version of the I Am a Fish story, uh, and that happens as well, along with all some of the other exam and revision based woes, happen to a character uh, played by Nick Wilton in Son of Cliche, in uh, in Freshers, which was one of their oh, ongoing yeah. uh, storylines, along with. Dave Holland, Space Cadet, and Asso, Spanish Detective, and Captain Invisible, and the See-Through Kid. Freshers was the the tale of students, and so much that happens to Rimmer, and there's so much that Rimmer describes, is is lifted from Freshers. 
except in Freshers, it was Nick Wilton that was the one that fucked everything up, and uh, Chris Barry just played his mate, who was kind of like just the straight man. <laughs> and so now it's it's Chris Barry's character that this is all happening to. Oh, that's great! So Chris had some level of understanding on how this character was going to. Like, wait a minute, this is really... way like put myself into <laughs> issues this time. How many times has Chris Barry had to perform a version of that scenario? <laughs> Son of Cliche, audiobook for this. Um, I think the radio the show is from the audiobook, right? He didn't really it is, record yeah. it. Yeah. And then the end as well, yeah. I just like, yeah, I can totally see sort of a, like in my head, the film version of that is more like an Edgar Wright kind of, you know, whipping and, and panning and kind uh, of like watching Rimmer downing like pints and then having it run. And it's all kind of done in really fast cuts of Rimmer just freaking yeah. out and just getting more and more stressed and just kind of, do you know what I mean? I just, I yeah, can a see calendar whole, click ticking through. I can see it happening corner. in the space of like two minutes of this whole just <laughs> montage of just absolute agony watching Rimmer just scream and just, I can just see it. Then after this, uh, after, you know, Rimmer's exams have acceded to possibly return to later on. Uh, Lister goes out and meets Christine Kachansky and falls in love. Uh, and then they very quickly, really, in the space of this chapter, he meets her in the bar and then they start seeing each other. And uh, the chapter then goes into sort of bits of their relationship. It's very, um, it's very, like, this is probably the most efficient chapter, at least in this part. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's a weird one because it's introducing us to a big deviation from the TV show. So, like, Lister actually data Kachansky, which is canon that would um, carry over into the show and then maybe get reversed again before series 7, although I'm not sure but but it's like, yeah, the whole, like it really like, it really encapsulates a whirlwind relationship because it's a whirlwind, like, description of it in the book mm-hmm. um, but I do love, I do love the build up to like Lister trying to build up to ask her out and then she just she just does it at the end. <laughs> yeah, and pulls the rug from him by yeah. doing what he wants to do in the first place. And I've always I've and this time reading it through, it's it's occurred to me that actually it seems like actually Kachansky's doing the same thing as Lister, which is going up to the bar, hoping that she'll see Lister again because she's the one going up every time. Yeah, yeah. They're, and they're she's, not yeah. She's saying, she she gets up and immediately goes back to the bar, and she's almost like as if they're all just kind of passing each other. Yeah. and it's like Kachansky's actually just as interested as Lister is. In the same way, Lister always volunteers ahead of Peterson. Kachansky's also doing that with her mate. Yes, but we don't see it from yeah. her point of view. Exactly. There's interesting things about Kachansky and the way she's introduced and everything. Blood Teller pointed out in the comments, which hadn't really occurred to me. They said the last time they read Infinity Welcome's Careful Drivers, they noticed that Kachansky doesn't actually get any lines of dialogue throughout the whole book. Uh, there is one exception, yeah. in that in this in this bit she says two words, which is <laughs> pretentious, Watashi. Uh, but yeah, other than that, she's right. Um, Kachansky doesn't really say anything. No. Or do anything. They talk about talking, but they don't go into any detail. And they say you can't write for women. <laughs> and it's it's and it's reactions about things, but it's not, you know, an explicitly stated. But I it was again the audiobook made this more more um evident as well because I was like, Oh hang on, what does Chris because well, I was reading that bit and I was like, Oh, I wonder what Chris is gonna sound like when he does Kachansky's voice. And then I realised that once that once that bit's ended, I was like, Oh, she never speaks again. <laughs> yeah, she's she's <laughs> in a few paragraphs and that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, so. which which does actually like it. It fits in with with Kachansky being this kind of almost like background thing in Lister's mind, and like this kind of ideal idealized figure that mm. he's kind of you know wants to get back to you know after the accident and everything. 
so maybe give, putting too much meat on a character would, would, would have detracted from that. This is something that uh, Pete Part 3 said in the comments. He said, both novels seem to be making a conscious decision to not let us form our own opinion on Kachansky, just telling us Lister's perception of her. Yeah. And every, every time she's described it, is, it, we're in Lister's head. So yeah. it is all about how Lister perceives her with the pinball smile and everything else. Which is a lovely description. It's yeah. something. It's something that you can start to get into with books that are so heavily POV driven like this, and that you get into the unreliable narrator, which kind of starts to boil your brain a bit if you go too far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> but yeah. um, but this this is kind of the time when it's kind of most prominent. Where you know, although he seems pretty realistic about her attractiveness in this, because he's <laughs> not says, a face that will launch a thousand yeah. ships. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe three ships and a small yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, actually, they actually they have a word for that. It's called a milli Helen. Uh, Helen is the uh, the amount of uh, beauty that someone had to launch a thousand ships. Oh, so right. a milli Helen <laughs> is someone who could. So Kachansky is three and a half milli Helens. <laughs> I'm um, sure Virgil would have approved. <laughs> wow, strong. That's actual. Like fucking hell, we're doing a book club, and that is an actual clever literary. <laughs> Bloody hell. Well, I mean, it's a Red Dwarf quote, so it's a cheat. Really. Yeah. <laughs> Even so, that is impressive. Don't talk to me about you... sophistication. I've been oh, to these. You've never said anything clever before. Danny, start the sophisticated music again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play one more time. Nice. Uh, in other comments, uh, Stillian and Anidides <laughs> says that the Kachansky describes here resembles Claire Grogan. Uh, which is obvious reasons because Chloe Annette hadn't been cast yet. Uh, but he or she, we don't know, says uh, her version of Kachansky, Chloe's version of Kachansky had very little reason to smile and showed next to no sense of humour, uh, whereas this is a much more satisfying depiction of her and Lister's relationship than any era of the TV show. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it, it is that thing of they have deliberately been aloof and deliberately kept Kachansky uh, very vague and only see it from Lister's point of view but one of the key things is her sense of humour and that's and it says that that's what um, one of the things that made Lister go from being attracted to falling in love was yeah. that she not only had the pinball smile but it was attached to a brilliant sense of humour which is a lot nicer than just being based on looks yeah you know? that's true yeah. and it's, it's interesting because the, the, the pinball smile you can like that's quite a Claire Grogan-y kind of description. Like, you know, yeah. um, her, her smile is quite kind of striking in that way. However, the the line, I know that Chloe Annette didn't exist at this point, but um, <laughs> the line, like, pretentious. Well, she pretentious, did. She, she, yeah. She, Chloe Annette I know. was born I at this stage. <laughs> It's a general comment that, you know, in, in, like, her Kachansky didn't exist at this point. Okay. But the pretentious Watashi, that, that's Chloe Annette's Kachansky, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine Claire Grogan kind of making that because that's a lame joke. Whereas Claire Grogan's Kachansky, I would say, would be genuinely funny. Whereas Chloe Annette's is she would make lame, which which, which which are you yeah. know um, endearing in their own way anyway. But she would make more kind of you know a geekier joke like that. I would think. Um, another comment Dave points out something that I'd put in my notes as well that. The material about Lister's dad's death and the head down the bowl reading the football results is repurposed here, and it's a conversation between Lister and Kachansky. Uh, makes for a nice tender moment that works differently to how it works in the TV series and gives mm. a sense of the meaning of the relationship uh, between Lister and Kachansky. And yeah, what I like about that as well is that it's a bit where the characters 
realize that it's funny yeah. and it's it's one of those things that i always find it's i find unrealistic in a lot of comedies that when the characters are never aware that they're being funny and it's like obviously you don't want that all the time yeah. because that would be terrible <laughs> but uh like every now and then when a character says something where in the fiction of the universe what they're saying is a funny story they should react as such yeah and it's like little moments like if something that for some reason always comes to mind is that <laughs> the fast show Christmas special <laughs> where uh, it's a Ted and Ralph sketch where um, he's, <laughs> Ralph asks him, they're talking about the poet Rudyard Kipling. And he says, do you like Kipling Ted? And Ted replies, I'm quite fond of the lemon slicer. <laughs> but then it's the joke isn't that Ted is being stupid. The, te- the joke is that Ted is making a joke and they both laugh and have a lovely heartwarming moment yeah, yeah, where yeah. they're all sharing a joke. And that that really reminds me of that kind of uh, of thing. It's like Lister becomes aware, and like we see Lister becoming aware that his story is funny. Yeah, it's like it hadn't occurred to him before, but because Kachansky laughed, it made him realise that he made him laugh as well. I think yeah. with, with Ted and Ralph, that comes up like that's you're right. It's an incredibly difficult thing to pull off. And with Ted and Ralph, that comes from like supreme kind of mastery of those characters. Um, yeah. and well, Rob and Doug had the advantage that they'd field tested that joke already on an audience and mm-hmm. so they knew it was hilarious <laughs> so they were like oh great we've, we've got validation this is a funny that we can, we can use that in this type <laughs> yeah. of reveal reaction needs to be similar to the audience of uh, Better Than Life yeah. I mean she could have gone oh, and then given him like a nice hug and like compassion but the fact that she belts out laughing at that is like just telling about Kachansky as a as a person as a character, and, as and that's what real like strong relationships are like. Yeah, um, mm. you know, you don't get platitudes. You get um, you get a little get bit, of, a little <laughs> bit of ribbon, and um, you know, maybe inappropriate laughing stuff like that. It's like that's yeah. you know, yeah. that's, that's the real yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So they're together, and it's brilliant. And Lister thinks it's going to last forever. And then chapter fourteen, it lasted a month, <laughs> and Lister is now very depressed. <laughs> Uh, and meanwhile, Rimmer is spending all his leisure time in stasis booths. Good character stuff, this. Rimmer and the stasis yeah. booths. And it's it's how stasis is introduced as a concept. Yeah. It's via Rimmer using it as a as a leisure pursuit, which like we will never get the impact of that really, because obviously we came to the like, the vast majority of people. I would have thought ninety odd percent already knew the TV series before they read this, yeah. and already therefore knew what stasis was. You could probably tell if you were reading this afresh that or maybe they're setting that up for later, but it's it's done in such a way that the application of stasis wouldn't necessarily occur to you just from reading what Rimmer does with it, which is his way of kind of cheating death and cheating aging and getting one over Lister in the most petty way possible by yeah. not existing and therefore gaining on him in terms of youth. In some in some tiny, tiny way, just being able to get gain some level of superiority in whatever way you I can. I win. Yeah. Like, he is reduced to um, having to get one up over on someone who is several ranks below him. <laughs> yeah. um, like, that's, that's what he's reduced to. But that's enough. That's all he needs. Obviously, the character of Rimmer is such a neurotic problem of a person who's so fucked up by his upbringing and his own mindset and the way that he views the world and the way that the world views him. It's just like, yeah. he's such a complex character. And I genuinely, like, he's one of the most complex characters I've ever seen written down. 
because there's just so much going on in his head. And I want to pity him, I really do. And then I find myself really not liking the man, but I can understand why he is the way he is. There's a reason why he's one of the greatest like comedy characters ever created. <laughs> also, I find there's another section in here that, like Rimmer's exams, reading this now as an adult, you know, I was a kid when I first read these, but there's two sections, one of Rimmer's in his exam words and the other one is here of thinking, God, that's real. And that's Lister describing life without Kachansky having split up with her. And it's like after the first time you get your heart broken, it, it's just yeah. Lister when he yeah. when he went shopping, he didn't go shopping. He went shopping without Kachansky. When he went to the bar, he didn't go to the bar. He went to the bar without Kachansky. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and like knowing that when, yeah, where, when he was doing something, he wasn't just there. He was n floors above and n floors away from. Yeah, yeah everything yeah. exactly yeah. where it's she was um, in yeah. relation in, yeah. in terms of his relative position to her. <laughs> <laughs> and then it disappears, and it drives you mad. And it's even worse for Lister because the thing is, she's still on the ship, so she's still there's always that chance that she's. Yeah, gonna it's see like a closed system. Like, mm. yeah. Um, thinking about it, like the, the 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 line about love is a virus. Um, that you know that that burns through you in the, like you know the the first few months, um, is said. I'm skipping ahead a bit, but it's said at the same time that the captain is berating um, Lister for the dangers of a virus being on board a closed system like Red Dwarf. Well, <laughs> maybe there's nice. maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. Very nice. It's a bit loose. But yeah, I mean, I was gonna. That was gonna be one a point I was gonna bring up about the the, the fact that love was a, a like somebody strained the virus, and it's obviously was like was that Landstrom? Because we assume we probably was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, was that Landstrom or is that what incels say? <laughs> <laughs> It's a fine line. It's a fine line. So easy to get those two dudes mixed up. <laughs> so let's move on to the the fateful day. Uh, it was in the rest of the book takes place in just one very important day, uh, and it starts off as a normal day at work for Rimmer before he realizes that he's missing a crucial exam, uh, and he resolves to cheat. Now, <laughs> the September's thing. Yeah. I'd kind of forgotten about this until people started bringing it up in the comments uh and when i read it back i was like yeah i'm kind of confused it's, as to what the problem it's, is it's it's, it's, it's a sort of error it. that would be a, i think the point is is that it's the sort of error that should be really quickly obvious yeah because you you don't just follow what month it is based on a single calendar that you look on your wall like it's all around you what month it is but maybe it's easy to get lost when you're in space and then you've only got a little strip of light telling you when what time of day it is maybe it's easy yeah. to lose track of the months i think i think that's i think that's part of it i think it's part of the whole the monotony of the thing it's like you know when we, we contextualize the time scale we, we've been in lockdown and you know it doesn't feel like as if we've been doing this for 13 weeks yeah like yeah but just, it, just for context like, but, at the time of recording we are we are in um i think april 2025 right now um <laughs> <laughs> The cows are dead. <laughs> the cows are dead. <laughs> There's no such thing as salt. <laughs> the ants have taken over. But, um, but, yeah. um, but I do like the idea. Like It's very easy for Rimmer to lose track of time. So for me, when I was reading it, I didn't really think about the whole fact he'd fucked up the timetable and in his, you know, in his, in his errors of writing a timetable out quicker than he would have done. Um, that he'd done it wrong. And then they just got his dates mixed up. I haven't really thought about the logic of it too much. It doesn't really bother me as much as it seems to bother Unfortunately, me. <laughs> be prepared to be bothered. Oh, no. 
<laughs> I get like obviously it all makes sense that he the point is that he's fucked up on the timetable and therefore lost track of time and he's and the date has come of the exam and he doesn't think that it's the date of the exam. Mm-hmm. But if he includes two Septembers, so yeah. it goes uh, August, September, September, October, November. Mm-hmm. How does he conclude that the exam is in November rather than October? If oh, anything, so mean, he should yeah. think it's a month earlier than it is. So he should think it's in September, September yeah. 2 on his Yeah, chart. the 2nd September. Yeah. So he oh, should I turn see. up a month yeah. early for the exam. The problem with this is that it's assuming he's jumped into the timeline of his wrong... Um, his wrong timetable because he's currently in October. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, he's currently in October, so it's September 2 for him. Yeah. Maybe if he's like completely duplicated the entire September column, <laughs> then it works. Okay. I'm, I'm starting Maybe. to talk myself yeah. around. If he's like, if he's not only just put the date as September twice, but he's got the whole column, so like. Yeah. Week one of September, I'm revising this, then I'm revising this, then I'm revising mm-hmm. this. And then he's just done that again. If he's copied and pasted that, but not, because he does it by hand, but if he's effectively yeah. copied and pasted that, but he's had a break, then everything it, has jumped on a month. Mm-hmm. So what he's done is he's gone through real September, yeah. and then October has started, and then he is now revising everything for the second time that he was supposed to revise in September. Yes. And so for him, he's like, oh, I'm still two months away from the exam. He's got a month less than he thought he did yes. to deal with things. That's why I think that's probably where my brain is with that because that's the only way. So, I think yeah. I think that's just how I understood it. I think other people have just have understood it in a different context. I think. Well, yeah. At first, I assumed that it was the label that had changed, but yeah, it it just says in his haste not to dwell on the const- in his haste not to dwell on the construction of the chart. Somehow, he'd included two Septembers. August, September, September, October, November around the new Romerian calendar. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't go into any more depth than that. It doesn't say so that he it, had a December because otherwise he'd have stopped. Yeah. So at first I assumed that he'd just mislabeled October as September. But if he's duplicated the whole of September, then it is basically doing... If he's repeating the entirety of September, then it works. Yeah. And he okay. had no idea yeah, that he but was that doing that it doesn't all cover over the again. fact that he thought the exam was in November. He says, the exam's in November, don't be a dick but it's actually yeah. in October. He would still think it was in October. Yeah, he'd just think that October yeah. was further away than it was. I think maybe, oh, fuck. maybe it was during the 2nd September that Lister uh, grew his second appendix. And it's maybe. just one of those. <laughs> yeah. I don't Time know. is occurring in random, random pockets. pockets. Yeah. <laughs> Although, like, talking about God, such things like hitting home... Um, I When I in my first year of university, I so I have a mental block... Um, with getting the number four and six mixed up and getting Tuesday and Thursdays mixed up. I had an exam on (laughs) Thursday the 16th and I was convinced... No, I had an exam on Tuesday the 14th and I was convinced it was Thursday the 16th. (laughs) Still there. It's just happened again. (laughs) And I... um, Suddenly, at some point, I got a text message from like someone I knew at university on like late in the Tuesday and said, you weren't at the exam today. like that feeling that I know exactly how Rimmer felt in that moment that he was yeah he was told um, and it's awful oh it's when fuck, your stomach just drops out of you yeah you just feel it horrible right out your oh. ass <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god I, yeah I've just remembered that during one of my A level exams I was working a shift in the checkout at Safeway 
and my mum came running in to say that the college had phoned that I was supposed to be having an exam oh. at that exact moment. I, it, I thought it was the following day. Oh, God. Yeah. It sounds like an anxiety dream. Really? I buried that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Must have been a shallow grave. Yeah, I think we could probably put that down. So that is a don't think about it too much. That's a backwards I think a backwards it's literally a case of rumour yeah. has fucked yeah. up. He's not thought about things. He's not got his dates right. He's and, got, uh, yeah. La, 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 la. Um, it's sad as well because this is like this is part of him really trying his hardest to mm. yeah. do things correctly, and this he'd is, resolved this is what he gets. to do it properly. Yeah. In this time, this 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 time round, he does actually because he says he he managed to get his timetable done in a quicker time, therefore he could go do more stasis booting. And you know, he'd actually worked out a sensible thing of you know not trying to cram it all in and, and yeah. spreading it out, and he'd done everything right except made one mistake and it completely fucked him up. Yeah, yeah. and it also. The fact that he decides to cheat only when he has no other options in his mind, like he's already thirty-five minutes into a two-hour exam, and he, uh, he, it's a real last-minute decision. It's like, well, this is the only thing I can do is to copy the textbooks onto my body. In the TV series, as far as we know, that was his plan all along, and he's just being a smug dick about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, see, he point. preps it in advance as well, and it's like yeah. really calculated, and it's like, right, I'm going to go in, I'm going to cheat. Whereas in this one, it is sheer desperation, and that makes it a more sympathetic act, and it softens Rimmer's character already, whether it's intentional or not. Yeah. Uh, chapter 16, the next one, is the first time the scene is lifted wholesale from TV, uh, where Lister is summoned to the captain's office to explain why he bought the cat. Uh, that's the first time ever. There is, there's substantial changes to the dialogue. It's not just exactly the same thing. Obviously, it's a different character, even though in our heads we kind of read it as Hollister. <laughs> it is a different character. Mm. But that's the first scene to be lifted from TV wholesale, and that's 82 pages into the book. Mm. And that's a that's a hell of a, a statement, really, that basically this entire bit tell is the end. The the yeah. the first part of this book is, is not even all of the end. It's the first 20-odd minutes of the end, yeah. because it, it effectively it goes up to the accident. Uh, it's just what they've chosen to spend their time on proportionately massively is different so all of, like we've got to this point we're nearly at the end of the chapter and we've now got to Lister going into the captain's office everything that happens beforehand is just it's a far more elaborate backstory than is in the end and actually like maybe unfairly I have this feeling of the books that they reuse TV show stuff a lot more than they probably do but I think that's probably more of a um, third and fourth book thing Mm. Uh, now that I think about it, like the the big chunks of TV show stuff being transplanted. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, as we've been comparing things to Hitchhikers, we might as well <laughs> do so again. Hitchhikers, and also the Quanderhorn experimentations did this as well, because obviously there was a book of the first series of that. Oh, yeah. Both Hitchhikers and Quanderhorn, every scene that's in the radio series is transplanted into the book, into the adaptation. Uh, Hitchhikers in particular changes things around and moves things and some bits are deleted but everything that's in the book is a direct translation of what's on the radio uh, whereas with Red Dwarf that's just not the case, it never has been the case, these are completely written from scratch, they're novels that happen to share a few of the same details but they are not by any stretches Im- adaptations. And I guess in that case they're, they're, they're like uh, Restaurant at the End of the Universe which of course is completely different to the second radio series yeah, because the second radio series is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's decanonized yeah, the second yeah. radio it's, series. Um, it's interesting. But yeah, the the first Hitchhiker's book definitely is, oh, yeah. is the first is the first four episodes pretty much 
in order. Yeah. I wonder how people would have like when when we when people if they hadn't seen the TV show and they'd read the book and knew how confused would they have been when the cat starts accusing Lister about the cat? Because the TV show we know about the cat. Yeah. In the book we've we seen have the no cat. Idea. Yeah. There's no mention of it until he mentions it. So I imagine how confused the, the readers would have been going, "What cat?" And it's like, mm. "What cat?" As a reader, you just be like, "What book?" What cat? <laughs> well, I guess I mean the TV series has the same thing. I mean the cat is only brought up. Oh no, no, you're right. Actually, no. No, we see the cat. Yeah, we see, no, the, we cat see the cat before, along with yeah. Craig Charles's bollock. Mm-hmm. Um, Kicks Lister in the bollock. That's a moment where yeah, there's a slippage where it's a bit like it's the Game of Thrones issue. So like Game of Thrones, the TV show, sometimes often went into a place where if you hadn't read the book, they were doing a really really bad job of explaining a particular thing to show mm. only viewers. Um, and for the most part this book definitely does a very good job of being separate but yeah maybe this is a case of like there's a bit of a leap there but then with it, this being a novel you have the advantage that you can then backfill those yeah. details yeah true so like it's not that that information's missing it's just the fact yeah. that you know it's, it's like, a, it occurs in a speaking, different order it's like there's a bit of a curveball in here yeah. And it does indeed yeah. backfill that information with some it mm. does um, what, what's interesting is when Lister is saying um like he's asking about the cat and he's saying, "Oh, its fur was hanging off," and he's he's making his situation way <laughs> deliberately. Like he's really worse. trying to, yeah, he's doing it on purpose in order to make the captain absolutely make that decision to to you know to punish him. And but the, we don't, but we don't know just yet that it's on. We purpose. don't know. No, we don't. Yeah, know. we think Lister's been a complete idiot. But let's okay. So quickly after the captain's scene, we have. Uh, the scene of the captain's office is the first one to be lifted from TV then we have the second one to be lifted from TV which is Rimmer's exam I was very grateful for this scene when I was younger when I was first reading this book because the exam scene in the end which I think we probably mentioned on one of the many commentaries we've done for that episode that um, I would never, I was never quite sure what the hell was going through his head when he stamped his hand on the page with yes. the, all what was even really happening like why was you know it's not very clear in the TV series, but this this scene does a really good job of go again, just going through his thought process of, oh god, my sweat has has smudged it. Let's see if this works. Maybe the words will magically appear if I do it. Like he's in the middle of a breakdown, basically. In that, well, that is that's why he did it. Did it. That and, is so much enhanced by it being in book form. The inner monologue that Rimmer has makes it a whole different beast. <laughs> in the t- in the TV show, it's a very quick. In out, oh, he's fucked it up. He's fainted. Yeah. But here, like we get, we spend time luxuriously going through Rimmer's point of view of the panic and losing the ability to read. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and <laughs> as you say, finding out why he slammed his hand on the table and there was actually a logical reason for Fuck it. That, that, that moment where he's going, where he's rationalising, he's going through all the questions. Say, okay, so I know the answer to that one. And and then he takes a giant leap of just like uh, no the answer is that one that one oh and I only need forty percent way I've passed like who hasn't had like that sort of really quick kind of like rationalization <laughs> race through their head when they're trying to yeah. calm themselves down at the start of an exam or something it was just like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah that should all be fine and then you like it's almost like it's a human coping mechanism to kind of to make you do something that seems insurmountable <laughs> and man the amount of times i've had that <laughs> and then we jump back to lister uh he refuses to give up the cat and so he's sentenced to three years in stasis but that was the oh. plan all along and that is such a key key thing 
it's one of those things that's never made it to TV again is of Lister being deliberately caught being the plan but with that in mind it makes Lister a much smarter character mm-hmm. he's much more of the protagonist that is in charge of his own destiny or at least mm-hmm. he thinks he is at this stage like he's this isn't just him getting caught with a cat isn't just something that happened to him it's something that he engineered it, it displays that he can outthink and outmaneuver the system it also demonstrates Lister's resilience. Like when he's in the locker, he just copes with that situation. He just manages well with it. Like he can always seem to manage well, no yeah. matter what he's scenario he's thrown into. Yeah, he's a survivor. Exactly that. You know what I mean? He just, you know, there's obviously going to be a point when he'll lose his head, but the point is, eventually, he'll just come back to a, a baseline normal. But Lister always seems to have stuff figured out, even though the world has other plans for him, but he has stuff figured out. Hmm. Well, Pendo pointed out in the comments, Lister's uh, much smarter here than he is in the end. His stupidity is a funny joke in the show, but here it paints Lister much more intelligently, and his decision to inoculate the cat shows that he's very conscious of the crew and aware of the dangers, and that he's thought out this plan thoroughly and not just acted spontaneously. Yet he will still rebel and bend the rules for selfish gain. It's interesting. Pendo mentions the fact he's, he's stupid on purpose in 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 the TV show. I don't, I I don't, I don't know if that's entirely true because I still think that when Lister's trying to piss off Rimmer about the whole thing about you know taking a sheep and a cow and breeding horses, it's like he knows he's not fucking serious. Like he, he says, he says, "What with the sheep and the cow?" He goes, "No, no, no, with horses and horses." I know, you know I fucking yeah, I'm know not that stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm not that fucking idiot. But you know what I mean? It's like, and he, he's trying to piss off Rimmer by just antagonizing him. He's like, "That's why the sheep would have to be quite tall." And it's like he, he, he knows what he's talking about. He just, he's just doing to piss off Rimmer. I think often in the in the early series, in series one, it's obfuscated by Craig's performance not being clear because like yeah. the, the watson iguana line could be a deliberate taking the piss but it just comes yeah. across that he genuinely doesn't know what an iguana is. that's true yeah and it that's always the one that you come back to the bloody iguana yeah pete part three points out lister buys a pedigree cat during the three-day stop in miranda inoculates it against every possible disease and then the cat is on board for a week when it's discovered and by this point lister already knows she's pregnant this poses some questions <laughs> Did Lister know Frankenstein was pregnant when he bought her? Surely it would come up when she was being inoculated that she was expecting, or did Lister work out that she was pregnant in the seven days afterwards? Uh, yes. Furthermore, did Lister knock up Frankenstein? <laughs> and yeah, so, the answer's no. Obviously he didn't. <laughs> okay. However, <laughs> back to the plot. Uh, in another instance of some of something being a significant difference in characters' motivations... Uh, between the the series and the book, finally um, we get uh, the accident. Uh, where well, well, firstly, I just want to say I really, really love the way the accident plays out in the book, yes. where it gives it like describes what happens minute by minute. It's just it's so it feels a lot more important. Like obviously in the TV series, the point was that we didn't see it. It's, it's something that happened to Lister off screen while he was frozen. But it feels like again more movie like, and and you can picture it happening. And the details of the guy in the drive room knocks his coffee over the console, and so when the warning lights pop up, he thinks it's because it's spilt coffee on it rather than mm. you're about to die. And the key thing is that Rimmer is not responsible for the accident. No, he's not. He's nowhere near. He's he's just recovered from. He's fainted in the exam. He's just come out of the medical bay. He's on his way to the stasis booth, and then the accident happens. It's just a chain of like 
you know the worst possible scenario where something isn't noticed something is mistaken for something else something is you know like this just chain of stuff just happens there's no there's never a mention of just a red warning like failed to go on in the drive room yeah that's, yeah. Failed to be noticed, that's literally yeah. all it is so this know? is more realistic is it more yeah. interesting I can't... well this is something that's been debated in the comments dave said uh it's a really interesting one and i wonder why they played it that way um, Pendo uh, said, "Did Robin Doug realize it was a bit too bleak for the character in the novel? In the TV show, it's easier to brush aside if Rimmer chooses to ignore it. But in a novel, when you have access to a character's inner thoughts, ignoring such yeah. an act would be more difficult. I think it de- it definitely paints Rimmer as more of a victim um, in a far more sympathetic light because it's, there's the tragedy of it as well, where <laughs> he's so close to getting to the stasis booth. He like his plan is to." You know, he's, 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 he's on his way to the stasis booth to spend more of his leisure time not existing mm. and if he hadn't have stopped to comb his hair and he hadn't have decided to yeah. throw the fucking screwed up paper in the ball screwed up paper in the thing <laughs> yeah, and they have to do it there and he combed his hair the wrong way to see what it looked like and didn't like it if he hadn't done one of those things he'd have survived the accident it just makes it all the more tragic but in a way that um yeah, again, makes Rimmer a sympathetic protagonist and not just an antagonist to Lister. Mm. And then finding out that Lister's actually going to gain three years on him regardless <laughs> of all the good things yeah. he's been doing. He's just like the final fucking straw. <laughs> yeah, he decides that he's going to lodge an appeal. Not because he wants Lister to... <laughs> not that he wants Lister to be saved, it's that he doesn't want Lister to be in stasis. <laughs> yeah, that's he just doesn't want Lister to be younger than him. <laughs> and then that's pretty much it. The... Uh, Rimmer is interrupted from his train of thought by a nuclear wind hurtling towards the corridor <laughs> and hitting him in the face with a nuclear explosion. And then the, there's the last tiny little chapter, which is almost like a little sequel hook. It's only one sentence long. Deep in the belly of Red Dwarf, safely sealed in the cargo hold, Frankenstein nibbled happily from a box of fish paste, while four tiny sightless kittens suckled noisily beneath her. And that is... Structurally, that's like the the last finals is like contents two in in, in polymorph, yeah. or it's like a little thing at the end of a movie, like a post credit sequence of like, oh, there's been this horrible nuclear explosion, but the cat survived. Life uh, uh, finds a way. I've I've got this whole image in my head of the way that that shot would have been done for the film, and it's like Rimmer's just you know the the explosion kind of rocks through the ship, the ship just thing. And then Holly starts sealing off all the doors and everything. And then there's like the one camera that just goes through a single vent and just follows it all the way through and then just gets about as deep into the bowels of the ship as it can. And then it's just a single light on top of the cats. That would work beautifully as animation, actually. Yeah. It's just a really nice thing. And it just just shows them kind of surviving and being completely sealed and happy and fine. And then it just fades to black. So that concludes uh, our chapter-by-chapter chapter discussion, but as always, there is a, a whole host of small points that we need to get together and, and wrap up and dust off before we can truly put this one to bed. Uh, so just going through some of the some of the comments, Milo Scat uh, says that on page 61, Rimmer had taken the exam 11 times, and on page 63, he's about to take it for the 13th time. What happened to the 12th? Get it together, Robin Doug. Shortest <laughs> gap between um, a plot 
plot holes, like uh, contradiction yourself. Yeah, continuity <laughs> yeah, errors ever. Less than two pages. Yep. <laughs> Dave says it's often a different kind of humour to the TV series. Uh, it's more lyrical, more arch, more ironic in some ways, but also very much in keeping with the show's outlook. Yes. Uh, Clem points out that the the baby I want your love thing gag was repurposed for Saunders saying it with the psychiatrist in chapter six. In chapter three, Lister biting his cigarette in half and getting burned is is was that inspired by I think I'm on fire. Oh, fuck I am. Smeck up. Gotta be, hasn't it? That's gotta be smeck up. It's gotta be smeck up. <laughs> International debris. I'd forgotten about Peterson's cans of whiskey. I first read it long before I knew much about alcohol, so I assumed that drinking cans of whiskey was a normal thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it is very different when you think about it. Like you can get um, cans of gin and tonic, so I would assume that is whiskey and yeah. um, fizzy water, like tonic water, because that is a drink. Oh, oh, yeah, you can get Jack Daniels and Coke in cans. Yeah. Rob and Doug were ahead of their time. I don't think you could back in those days. Yeah. Diane Abbott got told off for drinking a mojito and from a can on the tube. <laughs> That's <That's true>. yeah. <laughs> That was uh, about ten loath- years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> it feels. Uh, American says, uh, "What I'm wondering is whether Rob and Doug had any of the larger world building in mind when they were first laying out the show, or if absolutely everything in the book is them going back to what they'd already written and deciding to figure out what the broader implications of the concepts might be. We don't know the answer to that, but one of the things that came up in uh, in one of the Zoom uh, quarantine commentaries, Rob mentioned that at some point in writing the first series, he'd gone away and written out the names and ranks of all 169 crew members. Oh, yeah. Just so that he'd thought that through in his head and that he had that. So I wonder if, like, Burroughs and, and Petrovich and and all the and Saunders and all yeah. the other characters that are like Rob went, oh, well, hold on, let me get my uh, notes. Oh, yeah, that's what the navigation <laughs> officer's called. That's what yeah, the flight yeah. commander's called. So a bit, a bit of column A, a bit of column B. But actually talking yeah. about names really quickly, uh, I've got a note here saying that there was, I forget where he turns up, but there's a navigation officer called Henry Dubois. They're fucking yes. obsessed, yes. mate. The Dubois. <laughs> I was going to mention that. was that. one of my small points. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dubois turns up. So who's Henry Dubois all of a sudden? Where's oh, Henry Where's why is and Henry this was here? <laughs> Mario Dubois, the real life Dubois, only worked on series three. So <laughs> Yeah. Like unless they already knew him. Unless they knew a Henry Dubois and that's where the Dubois brothers. There's so many Dubois. Mate. Frank Dubois. <laughs> uh Pendo, uh can we please talk about the dodgy red dwarf logo on the spine and back cover? What's that about? It's and yeah. The basically in the original paperback of Infinity um, it has the proper sort of Series 3 era logo, and indeed the current logo, uh, roughly, on the front. But on the side, they've squashed... They've got red and dwarf, but they've squashed the ellipse to fit <laughs> the spine. Yeah. And, it, yeah, it doesn't look good. It's a big circle. It's a difficult a problem oval. to solve, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Getting it onto the spine. I mean, they definitely fixed it with the omnibus because they used the big, they used the uh, ellipse still to create weird. the O of omnibus. Still makes my <laughs> teeth a big O, and that's what that's what the the original looks like as well, but with no reason for it. I think yeah. in some later books, in definitely Last Human and backwards, they they just have the logo on its side so that it's you know the right proportions. Yeah, and yeah. so it's it's fine. I had a few tiny uh, small points of my own. Um, in chapter three, uh, there's a joke about Spanish coffees and cigarettes of uh, what could be better than uh, having real Spanish coffee and real Spanish cigarettes. That is lifted wholesale from Asso Spanish Detective, the uh, <laughs> another of Robin Doug's running uh, characters in um, in Son of Cliche. 
when Lister is found under the pool table, he gives his date of birth as, as November 2155, which is consistent with Ouroboros. Yes, it is. Uh, in the caption in Ouroboros is November 20, 2155, despite the fact that in between those two things, DNA uh, refers to Lister as a 23rd century guy. So <laughs> there's consistency between the novel in Series 7, but that gets forgotten about in Series 4. Very, very <laughs> red dwarf. Yeah, but that's like saying Jacob Brees Mogg is an enlightened 19th century guy. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, Lister's you know, very ahead of his time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe, yeah, yeah. The number of crew in the book is given as 11,169. So every time they increased the crew, they just added a 1 to the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> in the end, it's 169. In Justice, it's 1,169. And now it's 11,169. I like it. I like the laziness of that. Finally from me, two things that are mentioned in, in Chapter 13. Uh, one of them is, is the line about the uh, all the wit of an Alsatian dog after a head swap operation that oh, was later yeah. reused in Polymorph, which is after the book. So it was in the book mm. first and then Polymorph. Uh, and the other thing, the book that Kachansky's reading, Learn Japanese, is by Dr. P. Brewis. Yes. <laughs> a reference to Peter Brewis, uh, the composer who did all the music for Son of Cliché and uh, and also worked with and the Young Ones and so yeah. worked with Paul Jackson and Ed by a lot. I didn't realise the Son of Cliché reference. That was, I was going to bring that up because I was going <laughs> to say, was did obviously, were they, were, they, were they friends with him? But I didn't realise he'd done stuff for Son of yeah. Cliché. So that, there's well, a he on that he wrote the original music for Tongue Tied, lest we forget. Oh, yes, of course. We may come to that in a future dwarf cast once we've done all the <laughs> the son of cliche cast. Yeah. Well, you've basically mentioned all of my small points. Ha <laughs> um, I will. Apart from <laughs> apart from one, which is that the Rob and Doug do like to add actual celebrities who then become inexplicably become scientists. Yeah. So you've got Davro Holder, and in this one, I think we've got Deber. Oh yeah, it's like Chris, Christopher's theory on the horror circuits. It's like it seems like as if Chris, I'm sure that's a reference to Christopher, but they just seem to have yeah. this knack of taking a celebrity or a famous person and making it sound like the. What year became. was Lady in Red? Lady in Red was it was eighty nine, I think. Oh no, it was eighty six. I was wrong. Ah, oh, right. but yeah, Christopher the, would have already been everywhere. By yeah, this point. yeah, that's fine. That's some, you know they, they, that could have been stewing with them for a few years because <laughs> presumably he was still everywhere in eighty one. I don't know whether it could be. I mean, it could be bollocks. It could be just be someone they knew and decided to throw a name in. But they just Deber. I tried looking it up to see if there was actually a, like a physicist or a scientist called Deber, and there are a few, but not nothing that would like mention anything to do with like you know relativity or anything that they would actually be researching for the show. Did you have any small points, Capsi, that uh, you haven't already touched? All, all my small points have been um, thrust into the conversation already. I'm sorry for for touching upon all your small points, but there is, there's one more comment that we wanted to uh, read out, which is from Sai, uh, which is just a, a really nice comment that sums up quite a lot about what's so good about the book. Uh, and Sai says, something I like about Robin Doug's writing is the way it's formed. I don't know if they've written prose before, but it seems very natural, both the speech and the narration, the way it's set, the rhythm of the sentences, the short, simple sentences that set a scene or give a vital or important piece of information. Dennis and Josie were lovers. I love that sentence, the way it rolls off the tongue and bounces from the page. The endings of paragraphs and chapters. In just over seven months, everyone would be dead. He ceased temporarily to exist. Then he died. Then everyone died. Simple but direct. Come to that, the beginning of chapters, the very first opening capitalised introduction to chapter one is so striking and it's actually exciting just to look at. And of course, Rimmer's death suddenly hit full in the face by a nuclear explosion. It all just sounds nice. 
And yeah, it's been far too long since I did my GCSE, uh, my GCSE and A level English to me, for me to be able to analyse it in any significant way. But it all just sounds nice. It's a really neat summary of what makes Rob and Doug's dialogue so appealing yeah. and their prose mm. so appealing. They can take something sort of incredibly kind of outlandish and just kind of say it in one go as if it's nothing. And then you, you know, it can be such a such a broad concept. They can sell anything to you. Yeah. Like the, like you said at the beginning, like Saunders was dead and, you know, he hasn't enjoyed a bit of it. So it's that <laughs> whole thing of just like, there's a, so much to unpick. You know what I mean? There's so much to get from that. So And so having uh, successfully polished off these small points, uh, what better to follow up a small point than a small passage? Uh, we're going to end each uh, each chapter of our book club by each uh, reading out our yeah. favourite because we had to discuss in advance between us so we didn't just all read out the same one. <laughs> we're all, we're all going to nominate uh, one of our favourite bits uh, from the book uh, to, to close on. Uh, who wants to go first? I can't find my bit, so someone I'll else go, go first. I'll go first <laughs> then. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Let's hope this... Um, I, I haven't picked too big a... Um, chunk to shove into my passage. You do have a rather large passage. <laughs> Rimmer gripped the podium tightly, the inside of his wrist pointing out towards the new intake, a trick which, his book told him, would make his audience trust him, and began his speech to Z-Shift. My name, he said, is Arnold J. Rimmer. You will call me Sir or First Technician. I am your shift leader. This is my very first command, and I don't intend for it to be my last. What I do intend for is for Z-Shift to become the best, the fastest, the tightest and the most efficient routine maintenance, cleaning and sanitation unit this ship or any other ship in the Space Corps has ever seen. He paused. Silence. The book said silence could be as effective as speech if used judiciously. Oh shit. <coughs> judiciously. <laughs> you silence, it urged. Rimmer stood there being silent. Enough silence, he decided. More speech. When we do something, we do it fast and we do it right. More silence. Still more silence. No, this was a dumb place to have silence. It just made him look <laughs> like he'd forgotten what he was saying. <laughs> the internal monologue is what makes these books elevated. Like, that would be funny yeah. if you didn't have Lit River analysing the silence as he went. Yes. But it just makes it so much better. It really does. I can just hear sort of like a, you know, like the echoey sort of inner in a monologue as he's kind of as he's talking to people and is like why is everyone staring at me <laughs> uh, is, your, is your passage open for my, us Danny my passage is well and truly open I am ready for are you ready to receive my passage doesn't make any sense yes okay. he turned and looked out of the window as the shuttle ducked into the trench cut deep into Red Dwarf's back on either side buildings flitted past skyscrapers tower blocks a hundred stories high monoliths of steel and glass one minute it was as if they were flying through Manhattan, then without warning, the architecture changed, and it looked like Moscow. Then fluted pillars and elaborate neoclassic arches, and they could have been in New Athens. A tasteless mishmash of styles from the decades upon decades the vast mining ship had taken to build. For me, that's just that just says a lot about like that they have thought about this. They have thought yeah. about the the world that they're creating in that you know that is exactly how the world would work you know a building that's taken four hundred years to make or you know however long it is it's like styles and stuff come and go, and that stuff would have been in vogue at the point when that bit was being built. Yeah. So I just like the visual of that. I love the idea. Like in my head, it's there's a whole camera sweep through this amazing 
you know, this sl slow transition of, of styles as you kind of get through from one place to the next. And it's like, you know, you get like a New York-esque bit and then it's like a little microcosm of, 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 of styles. I yeah, love it. It's been thought through in so much more detail than is necessary. Yeah, but in a, such <laughs> a way that really fleshes out the whole look of the thing and you kind of get so much more of a, you get so much more of a visual image with it. It's great. My passage is a is a is a bit of a bleak one, but it's one that's always stuck with me. It's just it's so good. Uh, the music changed. A Johnny Cologne number. Press your lumps against mine. It was smooch time. There was a loud scraping of chairs as people stood up and guided their partners onto the already packed dance floor. A huge multi-limbed beast rippled, ebbing and flowing, contracting and expanding to the gentle sway of the music. Lister suddenly found himself alone at the table. The others lost in the undulating, pulsating mass of smooching bodies. He squinted drunkenly around the vast disco. So many people. People dancing. People touching. People laughing. People talking. People kissing. So many people. In just over seven months, every one of them would be dead. What's interesting about that passage is that, obviously, without knowing that Lister wouldn't be responsible for the death, <laughs> it does feel like as if Lister's going to go on a massive, yes. massive, massive birth say, of a serial killer. It's a really <laughs> decided. Odd, yeah, Look at those fuckers moment. dancing. Look at all these fuckers <laughs> laughing. Look at all these fuckers kissing. Look at it. Every single one of them will be dead. I am going to yeah. lose my shit. Because it's one not day, clear that all the, of you, I will kill. It's not all clear that you. the POV has been broken by that last sentence, is it? It's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's very much the uh, little did he know kind of thing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the voice of God saying yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> voice of a yeah. dog. <laughs> dog and Rob. <laughs> dog and Rob. <laughs> and so, uh, I think that concludes the first ever Dwarfcast book club. Uh, but rest assured, we'll be back in around two weeks' time to tackle the second part of Infinity, alone in a godless universe and out of shake and back. <laughs> Bear so in mind that easy. that one is a bit longer than this one, uh, so oh, fuck. good luck. Scrap it. <laughs> so look forward to the fire uh, hour. <laughs> it's about 150 pages, whereas this one was about 100 pages. Oh, so shit. we'll see. Right. We'll see. Uh, but if you'd like to contribute your thoughts, analysis, and opinions, then please leave them as a comment on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv. Uh, to help us out, please indicate in your comment if your point relates to a specific subchapter or is more of a general small point. And please, please, please keep it brief, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, we'll be recording our next one on or around the weekend of the 18th and 19th of July, so that's the deadline for contributions. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll be back next week with the more familiar format of an episode commentary as we begin our chronological trek through the remainder of the day era with Twentica. And we'll also be treating you to another edition of Waffle Men, uh, because we haven't waffled enough. Uh, Waffle Men, the section in which we bollock on about just about anything you want us to. Uh, so if you want to suggest a topic or ask a question for this on-demand section, uh, please leave us a comment on GNT, or you can tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. If you like our stupid overlong podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes so that the algorithm doesn't hate us quite so much. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, everyone, and until next time... Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Goodbye.